Thanks for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, check us out at cbctaylorville.com. Join us now as Pastor Steve delivers this week's message. Well, good morning once again. And as Josh already said, I want to reiterate, welcome to Calvary. I'm glad that you have joined us here this morning. And uh, we are now in the first Sunday of February 2020. One month has already gone. Can you believe it? Pretty crazy, huh? Uh, So I'm glad that you're here, and I hope you've had a great start to 2020. As a church, we've had a great start. We just finished our 21 days of prayer, uh, as we mentioned earlier, and we had a concert of prayer last Sunday. Again, if you missed it, man, I'm sorry, because you you missed a great night, but I hope that you'll uh, join us next time we get together and pray together. But what a great night it was. Uh, What a great way to start the year. But I am excited about what we're going to start today. We are launching into a, a new series. We'll be over for the next few weeks. And uh, you, whenever we talk about what we're going to do, the one word that we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks is the word resolved. Now, there are several definitions of resolved, obviously. But the word that we're looking at is by resolved, we mean firmly determined to do something. I'm going to get this done. I am resolved to make this happen. Now, we kind of understand that word. But it also has a a variety of meanings, and sometimes it's a little hard to apply. Let's just be honest, right? Because what's one of the things that we've already talked about this year, and many of us have already forgotten? Your New Year's, yeah, yeah. you resolved on January 1 that you were going to, and this is just to put you all in the same boat. The the recent statistics show, U.S. News said that 80% of people have already given up on on their resolutions by February. (laughs) <laughs> All right, so we, 80% of you have already said, so, and only 8% ever keep them in t- to any kind of a long-term thing. So if you're, that's you, that's, you're in good company, right? So, and what a great way to start. Res- we're in February. Some of you need to remember. But it's Super Bowl night. What diet, right? Okay, so we, we understand. We, we get where we're going, and resolutions sometimes are a little tough. Here, here's what I want to be. We, once we understand this idea of resolved, and, and get an idea that it's beyond just some flimsy New Year's resolution, I think what we're going to talk about in the next several weeks could really make a significant impact on all of our lives if we're willing to listen and go there. Here's what we're going to do for the next several weeks. We're going to be looking at a very important, interesting book in the Scriptures, and that's the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bibles, uh, it's towards the end of the Old Testament in the prophetic books, the book of Daniel right after Ezekiel. We're going to be looking at this very important book of the Bible, and from that we're going to find how this word resolve fits into our lives. So I I encourage you, read up, keep keep going, just read through the book of Daniel for the next several weeks, because we're going to find a lot. But let's start with the very great place to start, and that would be verse number one. Let me give you an introduction. Here's how it starts, Uh, and and this is, if you're in a life group and you're going through the sermon, sermon stuff... You're going to have a lot of fun with some of these names throughout this study, especially tonight, okay? So I'm kind of anxious for our group to get together because I want to hear some of you try to say these names. It's going to be fun. I'll show you. Here's how it starts. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar. That's a great, say that word, Nebuchadnezzar. It's a great word. Uh, when we went to New York, first week we were there, we had a guy teaching, uh, and, and he had a really strong accent. He was from the island somewhere. So I, and he said something about Nebuchadnezzar. And I go, who is Nebuchadnezzar? I read the Bible before. Who is Nebuchadnezzar? Whoever Nebuchadnezzar is, okay? So however you want to say it, we'll just call him Neb for short, okay? So here's what it says. Neb, in the Bible it says, king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
Now, just for purpose right now, jump down to verse 21, and it says, And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. The reason I want to start that way is I want to give you this morning as we dive into Daniel, I want to make sure we get kind of a good picture of how this all works. Chapter 1 of Daniel is a distinct unit from all the other 11 chapters. Daniel chapter, you, you already saw just what we read, it has some very specific historical time markers. You can take these and you can go to history and you can find exactly when it started. The third year of King Jehoiakim and the first year of King Cyrus, that's about 605 to 539 B.C. You can find, so these are specific articles, first chapter. We also know as you get into this, this, this passage, right in this first opening chapter, uh, Daniel gets right to the action. We're going to talk about that today. He also introduces the main characters that you're going to see throughout the rest of the book of Daniel. And what I believe is he also introduces the theme of what Daniel is all about and what, what we're going to be seeing as we walk through the book of Daniel. And that's what's kind of interesting. How many have ever read the book of Daniel? Just, I, I'm just curious. Okay, here's what I know. My, growing up, Daniel to me was an adventure story. Am I right? I mean, you don't get any better stories than Daniel. They're fun to listen to. They're fun to tell. I mean, we're talking lions and fires and bears. Oh, my. I mean, we're talking all that stuff right in the book of Daniel. This is great stuff to hear and to listen to. But that wasn't the purpose of Daniel. It wasn't an adventure story position. In fact, if we're not careful, sometimes we actually tell and hear those stories and we get almost a wrong perspective of the Scripture themselves. Because if you tell them the, in, in the way that often we hear them, and that is if you follow God and you do the right thing, then you're never going to have big problems. God's always going to stop the lion's mouths and you'll never go through the fire. And that's just not true. In fact, the Bible is pretty clear. Hebrews 11 very specifically says a lot of the things we'll see in Daniel are more exceptions than the rule when it comes to how we face life. So if it was an adventure story, that's what, but that's not the theme. Another theme possible that many of you are familiar with is it also wasn't written to be a prophecy seminar, okay? Because if you were to read through Daniel, chapter 6 and chapter 7, there's a very definite dis, uh, distinction between the two sections, the first half and the second half. And from chapter 1 through 6, it's about, most of it's about history and what happened during this time in Babylon. And then suddenly, chapter 7, it moves from history to what's going to happen in the future. And there's, there's some incredible prophecies. People have debated and discussed, and it's very interesting. And people are going, oh, what, what does this sign mean? And is this going to happen? And, and people are wanting to put down dates and all this kind of, it's a very interesting. But that wasn't the purpose of Daniel. In fact, one guy I read this week, and I thought this was a great thing. He said, I've come to the conclusion that it comes to Jesus coming again, which he is coming again. I'm part of the welcoming committee. I'm not part of the planning committee. <laughs> I don't know when he's coming, but I'm going to be ready when he does come. That kind of, understand? And so we don't want to get off on just the prophecies of Daniel. Very great stuff, but that wasn't the purpose. The purpose of the book of Daniel, and you'll see it right, right in this beginning, the beginning of this, of this uh, very first chapter. I'm going to put it in two ways. And so right now, you can fill in numbers one and two, and then we're going to come back and unpack them as we go through. But on your sermon notes, here's the first thing as we talk about a general theme of Daniel is this. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. In spite of what it looks like right now, God is in control. We're going to see through chapter 1 and, and throughout the book, 
And in fact, I think chapter 4, verse 17, includes a sentence that perhaps could be the theme of the entire book of Daniel. Let me give it to you. Chapter 4, verse 17. So that, that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. One of the major themes of, of Daniel is God, the Most High, Almighty, is sovereign, which means he is totally in charge of all, including all kingdoms, all people. God is in control. That's one of the major themes of the book of Daniel. With knowing that, it also helps us understand this second major theme running through Daniel, and that's this, that even in exile, God's people have the ability to be faithful. Here's what you got to remember. When God writes a, a book of the Bible, we, we get it and we, we love it in different in parts of Daniel. But you got to remember, when God writes, wrote a book or he had a book written, it was written to a specific people at a specific time in history. There were specific contexts. There were specific things going on that help you understand why God wrote that. And when God's writing to this, this book of Daniel, he's writing, as we've already seen, this first, this first verse, that something has happened to Judah, the country of Judah. They have been besieged by a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. And not only besieged, if you were to look in, and you can find biblical history, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you will find that not only besieged them, he overtook them, he overthrew them. Judah fell as far as a kingdom, and they were then assimilated into Babylon, into this, into this kingdom. So now we have Jews, many of which were then, some are taken to Babylon, others are just in captivity, but all are in exile. And they're all discouraged, and they're all beaten up. And so what this book was, literally, was a book of encouragement. The book of Daniel was written by an exile to people who are in exile. This was written from a captive to captives. And he's telling them that in all this stuff, here's something interesting about Daniel. Daniel spent most of his living days as an exile, as a captive. But if you do the math right in this first chapter, Daniel was approximately 15 years old when he was taken captive and taken to this foreign country. And then if you follow the timeline to the end of this chapter, which we read, about 66 years later, Daniel dies. And that's when Cyrus takes over. What's interesting is the captivity of Babylon for Israel was 70 years. That means Daniel never left exile. He was in exile for about 66. He missed it. He was in it from the beginning, and he never saw it end. His whole life, he was spent in exile. He was spent as a captive. He was spent as one who wasn't, their, their country wasn't in charge anymore. And yet, in the middle of all that, he tells what God did and how God is still in control. And what he's saying is, I stayed faithful, folks. You can too. You can do this. It's not easy. It's hard. We're all in captivity here. But for this year and for the years to come, in the Jews, they could look back at Daniel and find encouragement that God is still in control and we can still be faithful to our God. All right, so that's what Daniel was written for. That's who Daniel was written to. What in the world does that have to do with us? 3,000 years later, sitting in Taylorville in the 21st century, how does any of this apply to us? But we're going to see how, how this just completely ramps up into us. What does resolve mean to us? And one of the ways we're going to do this is let's look at one of the words from that original verse that we looked at. One specific word. It's a marker, and that's the word Babylon. I want you to just focus on that word just for a moment, kind of get an idea, because that becomes a very important word in this whole book of Daniel. It's, it's, 
important that we understand it, and I think it will also help us understand why this book is relevant to us. Now, for those of you, you don't have to be a history buff necessarily, just if you've heard anything about ancient history, you've probably heard the name Babylon. Okay, it is a historical place, a geographical place, a geographical idea. Just to give you a picture of modern days, to kind of give you where it was in the world, it basically was, it started in Iraq, it was the country of Iraq, and it ran down into Egypt. That was the country of Babylon. The city of Babylon itself would have been about 50 miles south of what we know today as Baghdad. Okay, does that give you a, a picture? That, there was a literal place called Babylon, and it, it literally had this geographical center. And, and the, the city itself, Babylon, was called the city, the name Babylon means city of gods, which that's going to give you an indication of some things about Babylon. But the Bible actually tells us how Babylon got its start. And when it started, it had a, a different name. Let me give you just a little history. Just follow me here. Don't lose me. Genesis chapter 11, it tells us in verse number 1 that the whole world had one language. That was interesting. Everyone spoke the same language, same common speech. And the people moved eastward, and they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. The plain of Shinar would be what we know as Iraq. So this is where it all started. This plain of Shinar is where, uh, where we find that today, and this is where Babylon got its start. If you move on down to verse 9, there was a great thing happened. God confused all the languages, and that's a whole other message. I just want you to see this. This place in Shinar was called Babel. And it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. Babel was the original name of Babylon. And Babel means confused because God confused the languages. So we know Babylon gets its start here. This is where, that's where its location and it will take off from there. But here's what I find interesting. In verse number 4, it tells us why God confused the languages. What was it that bothered God about what these people were doing? Verse 4, the people said, Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Two things in that verse. One is, we don't want to be scattered. But God had already said, my will is that you scatter, that you go and you populate the earth. So they didn't want to be scattered, even though God had said that's going to be different. And they wanted to make a name for themselves. That's more than being famous. They were the people, they were a, a gathering of people. It wasn't just we want to be famous. They want their name to be top. They want their name to be the one that is, is recognized. They want to have their name above God's name. Here's what we see from the very beginning of how Babylon got, got its start, that in this original, the, the whole idea of Babylon has this arrogance, this defiance against God. It's we want to do it our way, we want to have our name, we want to have this, this, this I, we're, not, we're doing it, we're in charge. Now, significantly, history tells us that Babylon, a few years after what we're reading in Daniel, was assimilated into the the nation of Persia. Persia then overtook it, and, and for all accounts and purposes, Babylon as, a, as an empire went away. The city of Babylon became an archaeological dig. I mean, it all goes away in, in literal terms. However, if that's so, why is it that when we get to the book of Revelation, there's a couple places, and I'm going to look at chapter number 18, 
And this is not only just 600 years later, which when Revelation was written, but now we're talking things that haven't happened yet, 2,000 plus, they still haven't happened. So we're talking over 3,000 years. Why would the book of Revelation say, a mighty angel with a mighty voice shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit. Here's what I want you to understand. Babylon was a literal historical place. But the Bible says that it, beca- it becomes more than that. When you hear Babylon in the scriptures, there are times, just like we're reading in Daniel, that it was talking about that literal place. But Babylon also began to personify everything that's evil. It began to personify all false religion. It began to be the image of everything wrong and evil and demonic. Everything that I want my own God, I want to do it my own way. Babylon became the, the image, the icon for that was this name Babylon. It's a picture of rebellion. It's a picture of defiance. It's a picture of, I don't want God. I want to do it my way. Babylon became the picture for that as you go through the scripture. So whenever God's not talking about a literal place, we're talking about a philosophy here. We're talking about an attitude. We're talking about an arrogance. That's the word Babylon. And so as we get into this idea, what, what does it have to do? Nebuchadnezzar, he was a powerful emperor. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar was not only powerful, he was an evil emperor. We don't get all of that, but you'll hear some, t- some tidbits of that as we go through Daniel, that he was arrogant, he was prideful, he, everything was about him, that he was cruel, all of these things, because literally it was personification of evil. But then as, as we see this symbol, even throughout the scriptures, even once Babylon as a nation is gone, the spirit of Babylon still exists. It still continues. So we're not just talking about geography here. We're talking about a spirit, an attitude. So how does this book relate to us? Let me give you to it this way. Today, we are surrounded by a Babylon of our own. Everything that is against God, everything that defies God, everything that wants to elevate self and wants to make me the God, wants to put my, my pleasure and my stuff on top. That's all the spirit of Babylon. Babylon. We live in that culture. We are surrounded by the culture. Babylon still exists in culture and atmosphere, and we live right in the middle of it. In fact, what a lot of people refer to as, for, for those of us who believe in God, followers of God, we are in what is called, in modern terms, a culture war. And the culture war is a difference between those people of faith that believe in God and those who want to make all their decisions, even of right and wrong, without any recognition of God. It's those who say God has a say in it and those who say God doesn't mean anything. And there's a war between the two. And, and there is this, some who do not, do not want to say there is a higher being or even a God or, the, or they want to take his name away. A University of Virginia professor not long ago said this. He took the, and described this culture war And he said it comes up basically on five different fronts. And as I read it, I thought, I I can agree with this. See if you understand what I mean. The culture war, it comes in the form of family, your education, popular media, the law, and the politics, the electoral politics. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Here's what we understand. It doesn't matter what, what uh, affiliation you are, whether you're conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republican. doesn't matter. Here's the thing. If you're a follower of God, a Christian, at some point, you are going to come at odds with the culture around us, with the Babylon around us. At some point, if you're truly following God, because if your allegiance is to God, it is going to come in contrast to this culture. 
at some point, we live in a culture still, as Babylon was then and is still today, when standing for what God says, what the Bible says to be true, is going to come in, in direct conflict to the culture around us. Because Babylon is still here. You still live in this culture, and the things, the things that, that Daniel faced in his Babylon are still things that we have to face. And this is going to be, here's today's thought. What Daniel had to do and what we're going to have to do is, as we said in our opening video, we've got to figure out how to stand out in this culture of Babylon. How to stand out in the right way, at the right time, in the, in the right manner, but to stand out. To, to not be so that there's no difference between us and the culture. Because if we're truly following God, there has to be. And it's learning how to stand out in this culture of Babylon in which we live. Follow me so far? This Babylon is important because we still live in it. And it's how do we, how do we react and interact with this Babylon in which we live. All right, so here's what I want to do. Jan Daniel chapter 1. I want to walk through, look at those two themes again, and begin to unpack what that looks like, what it, what it means for you to stand out in this idea of Babylon. So here's theme number one. Hopefully you've already filled it in. But in spite of present appearances, God is in control. That's a great phrase. Is it not? To think that no matter what things are looking like, no matter what is going on around us, even though we don't understand it, God is still in control. Now think about it from the perspective of the people, Daniel, what, who he was and who he's writing to. People in exile, captives. And so it looks like God's not in control. Sometimes when you look around, you, that would be the last thing in your mind. It just looks like everything else... Babylon is in control. Babylon, it seems to have, it has, it, everything looks quite the opposite. Go back to verse number one again. Look how he starts it. It's the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, that's what the history books will tell you. That's what Nebuchadnezzar thought. I'm this great and powerful Oz, and I'm going to come and just take over people. And he did, and he just kind of ran over people. He defeated Egypt. They came. Now, he's, he, at this point, is the most powerful ruler on the earth. And, he, and there's, there's definitely, in the lower story, all the people that are in exile, that's all they see is that, that we are now under the dominion of this Nebuchadnezzar. But, folks, in Daniel, there is a huge upper story going on, a story that couldn't be seen here on earth. And look at how verse number 2 says it. Verse number 2 starts this way, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Nebuchadnezzar has taken over, besieged. Oh, wait a second. Verse 2 says, It was the Lord that delivered Jehoiakim. The word delivered literally means he handed him on a platter to Nebuchadnezzar. God's the one that said, What we're saying is the overthrow, the captivity of, captivity of Judah was not an accident. It was not just some powerful uh, ruler coming in. It wasn't because Babylon was the superpower and they just, nobody could stand against them. You can't touch this, right? And they're just, nobody can stand in front of, that, that was, there's more to it than that. There's more to it than how strong Babylon was. What we know is God's people, Judah, had openly rebelled and defied God. And God had told them over and over again, there will be national repercussions if you continue down this road. And they, can, they refused to turn back to God. And so ultimately, part of this was God handing them over out of judgment. I told you this was coming. If you do not follow me, I will allow someone. Because Israel had defeated stronger armies than Nebuchadnezzar's before. Judah had defeated more armies and, and in battles, battles that they didn't have to fight. We talked about that last week. And God took care, but, but not this time. 
This time's God said, I told you this was coming. Part of this is judgment. But even beyond judgment, we know that part of it that was that God had set in place that Judah and Israel were to be a, a, a nation that according to their start in Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham was called, they were to be a blessing to all nations. That as they followed God, that was to bless and to help all nations. But since Judah was not following God, they weren't being a blessing to anybody. They weren't helping anyone. So part of this was judgment, and part of it was God putting them in a place that they didn't want to be, but to influence nations in the way he had designed. This was all God's plan. In fact, let's look at that phrase again. God delivered Jehoiakim into his hand. That word delivered... There's three times we're going to see this word in this first chapter. And I think each one of these is significant. Your version may say, and he gave him to Jehoiakim, or he he allowed it to happen, he caused it, whatever. But that word is very significant. It literally means to put or to appoint, to delegate, or this is the one I love, to assign. God assigned Jehoiakim to the kingdom of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. This was not an accident. This was an assignment that God gave these people. So here's what I want you to get, that that we can put it this way. God assigned this people. God assigned this nation to be in Babylon at this time for this particular reason. They weren't a tragic accident. They weren't just helpless victims. God put them on assignment in Babylon. Let's keep reading, because I want you to see just how far God would go to, to let his nation influence a nation and bring judge. Here's what he says, Daniel 1, verse 3. The next verse says, Then the king ordered Asphanes. There's another big one I want you to, to pronounce. We'll just call him Ash for sword, okay? The king ordered Ash, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Nebuchadnezzar has this idea that when they overthrow Judah, they're going to bring the, the best and the brightest, those most lo- voted most likely to succeed, of the, of the king's nobility in Judah, and we're going to bring them, but catch this, not just bring them into our kingdom, we're going to teach them, we're going to teach them the Babylonian ways, and we're going to let them be a part of our government. God is in control here, guys. This was, Nebuchadnezzar thinks, I've got all this handled, I'm going to bring these people in, I'm going to change them, I'm gonna, and God is putting key people in the positions of authority in the strongest empire in the world. God is in control, despite what the appearances, what the circumstances seem to say. And if you keep moving, not only that, there, the Ashpenaz, the chief, the ruler, actually began to have this different heart for some of the guys that we're going to look at, Daniel and his three friends. Look at verse number 9. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But don't miss that, that word caused. That's the same word we just read as delivered or gave. Same word, second time it's used. God now gave this chief a special heart for Daniel. That's not an accident. 
It wasn't this guy's looking and said, oh, I like this Daniel guy. God put it on his heart. So God is moving in everything. God put Jehoiakim and Judah in this place. He puts all of Daniel and, and, and the others in these places of government. And then he puts a special place in the heart of the ruler over Daniel and his friends. God is in control. God has assigned them. But now notice God has positioned them. God not only assigned them to this nation, he positions them exactly where they need to be in this place of ruling and government within, within this nation. And, and something else, go down to verse 17. To the, these four young men, that's Daniel and his three friends we'll talk about, there's, and, and that's the third time God gave. That's that same word again. That in the third, these four men, God gave. That's the same word as deliver, the same word as cause. God gave. He gave them assignment. He gave them positions. And now notice what he gave them. He gave them knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. God assigned them. God positioned them right where they needed to be. And then God equipped them to do what he had called them to do in that land. To, he actually, this was all God's plan. It doesn't matter what the circumstances look like. God was in control, and he put these people right where they needed to be. Okay, stop here. Put your pins down and look at me real quick, okay? Because some of you haven't looked at me since I started. So look at me real quick, okay? Get in a complex. Now, here's the point. Are you seeing the connection? You are in Babylon. You are in a culture that defies your God and doesn't believe the same way you do. Our culture gets, is, is, is an anti-God culture. It has been, and Babylon still exists. You live there, but you're not here by accident. God has put you on assignment here. You are not just existing. You have been put in Babylon on assignment. God has a way for you to be able to show the world that there is a God, be able to show the world that Jesus Christ loves them and died for them. You are on assignment in Babylon. Not only that, God has also positioned you in this assignment to be just where he needs you to be. Think about this. Your, your place that we live, our country, our state, Boy, that would be a great place to be assigned to, right? Everyone's running to our... Here's the point. You're not here by accident. You're not in this city, in this community by accident. You're not in your family by accident. You're not in this... In, in the, anywhere that you see, you're not in your job by accident. You are your sphere of influence. None of that is accident. God has not only assigned you to do a work, he has positioned you in the place that you are to do that assignment. And then don't forget, he also then will equip you to do what he called you, to, what he assigned you to do. So your personality and your abilities and what God has given you and the things that you like and the ways that you go and the thing, all of that is God's way for you to fulfill the assignment that he positioned you to do. That's how amazing this is. Babylon is real. But folks, you're on assignment if you're a follower of God to make a difference, to influence this Babylon for God. In spite of appearances, God is still in control. Regardless of what's going on in your life and what you see, meditate on that for a minute. Think about it. Those Jewish exiles, whew, that's good news. Because right now it doesn't look very good, but God's still in control. And even if they didn't see all the inner workings like we can see it, God was still in control. Whatever's happening in your life, even if some of the issues you're facing are of your own, you, it's bad choices. Judah was there out of bad choices. 
And yet God was still in control. And God is still able to take it. And God is still able to make something amazing out of it. No matter the appearances, the circumstances, God is still in control. And you're on assignment to do something for him. Number two that we're talking about, this second theme that we'll see in this chapter, is even in exile, even if you're living in Babylon, God gives his people the ability to stay faithful. You can do this. Whether it's then, now, there's sometimes people have this idea that I can just say that I'm a follower of God. I can say that I'm a Christian. I believe in God, sure. I've always believed in God. And and this kind of a cultural Christianity where we can just say it, but it it shouldn't really affect our lives. It's not true. God has called you, but he's called you to be faithful, to do an assignment. But to be faithful, you're going to have to stand out. You're going to be different because God's ways are different. It's about that that how you live will make a difference. We're called to live as God's people in a hostile Babylon, in a hostile environment. Because God says, be holy like I am holy. You are to stand out. There is something that we as believers, we have got truth, and it, it, it should reflect in the way in which we live. In reality, faithful followers of Christ, in this environment, it's hard to think about that. It's hard to consider that in this environment, in this culture that doesn't like God and doesn't believe in God and wants to take all that away, it seems like it's daunting. But put it in perspective. Think about these these young men in Babylon who literally have no freedom. They are completely at at the beck and call of Nebuchadnezzar and his people, and they're living in this, and yet in that they still are called to live for God to live faithful, to be people of God and to be recognized as such. So so here's what what Neb does. Nebuchadnezzar has this ingenious strategy. He's not just going to bring in those best and brightest. He's actually going to, by as best he can, he's going to transform them into Babylonians. He's going to make them become just like the rest of his people. It's ingenious. Here's what he's done. He's taken away their home. He's now isolated them. He's taken away their their religion as far as he's concerned because he tore down the temple. He destroyed the temple when when he left. And now he's wanting to take Judah's future by taking their young men and reprogramming them, retraining them to be Babylonians. So when they lead his country, they're no longer, by his description, no longer going to be what they were. He's going to change them. Here's how he does it. Look in Daniel 1 and verse 4. Ashpenaz, when he met with the guys, he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Look at this. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were entering the king's service. He didn't want them just to be in Babylon. I want them to be Babylonian. And so I'm going to do everything I can. And so they taught them. He indoctrinated them, taught them the language taught them their culture. Here's what he's training. For three years, intense training, he wants, he's training them to think like a Babylonian. He's training them to, be, to believe like a Babylonian. He's teaching them all their, when he's teaching them their, he's teaching their, their false gods, tra- believe like, and he's training them to behave like a Babylonian. I can, if I can get them, because here's the thing, if I can get them to think and believe like a Babylonian, that will affect the way they live. That's usually how it works, is if I can get, if I can change that and I can teach them long enough, then ultimately they will be Babylonian. They will change. And our culture is trying to do the same thing. It's trying to train us. It's trying to make us think differently. And 
that's why God says it's so important that we transform our minds because God has called us on assignment to do something different in the Babylon in which we, which we live. In fact, he even took it one step further. Verse number 7, the chief official gave them new names. And here's some names you want to get. Daniel, he changed to changed to B. To Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. Those of you who know the stories, those are the names we recognize, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There was, a, there was a reason why he did this. All their former names, Daniel and the other names, the, all their names within them had either the name or the concept of Jehovah in their name. Jehovah is prince. Jehovah is, and everything had to be about Jehovah. He took Jehovah out of their name, and every one of the new names has something about their new gods, Marduk or Bel or their new, their new. And so what he was doing, he was trying to take their, take their faith and actually transform it. And so now if, if we call them this, and so this, this was a whole indoctrinate for three years. We're changing their name. We're changing what, they, what we hear. All of these things, we're changing them to be what we want them to be. And it looks like that would be a great process. Everything seems to be going just fine, but Daniel throws a wrench in the whole, in the whole works. Verse number 8, when everything's going well, the Bible says, but Daniel, and here's our word, resolved. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Okay, so we're going along. Babylon seems to be working. We're going to train it. We're going to teach it. We're going to change the name. We're going to eat like blah, blah, blah. And suddenly Daniel raises his hand and says, wait. There's one th- we're, we're not going to do this. I am resolved. I have determined not to defile myself. I have determined that, that there, is one th- there is this area. All the, and, and this is what kind of grabs my attention as I walk through. Why, why this one thing, Daniel? I mean, they, they're throwing school at you. They're throwing a new language at you. They even changed your name. Why did you stop here with the food, Daniel? Here, here's one thing I know is Daniel's probably, it, this is just my thinking, but I, I think it makes sense. Daniel's going, you can call me whatever you want. That doesn't change who I am. I'm still Daniel. I still follow Jehovah. You can't, changing my name doesn't change me. You can, you can, tra- uh, you can tr- do all this stuff. It doesn't change what I believe. You can't change my heart and my mind. But when you come to this food, that becomes something that then represents who I follow. It now becomes a picture of, my, of the God I follow. Here's some things we know about the food, and it could be any of these options. But probably the food that they were offered from the king probably had some food in there that they were not allowed to eat. Pork, something, was pro- that's probably part of it. That was part of the dietary that they, as Jews, were not allowed to eat. We also know that all of their food was delivered to the gods before they brought it to the king. So it was probably also this idea of, of this was sacrificed to idols. We don't want to follow it. And then there was also this covenant. Whenever you eat with someone and you partake with them, you're saying that we agree with you, kind of a covenant idea. Maybe one, maybe all of those things were involved with why this food wasn't. But here's what got, gets my attention is when Daniel hears all of this, he stops all of this. They're going the way they're, they're going to do it, but they say, wait. If this is something that others would see and it could defile the name of our God, got to stop right there. I am resolved. I am determined. I have made this decision that, excuse me, there's a line that I will not cross. 
This word defiles means if it pollutes God's name, if it makes God's name in any way look less, and all of those things that could be seen, all of the, you, you can, I can participate, but there's a, there, there's a stopping point. Here's what we know. This would be a good definition. This is a premeditated decision, a premeditated resolve that I will not defile God's name. And if there's anything that we get out of today, and as you go through Daniel, that's it. That Christians, followers of God, we live in a Babylon that wants to infiltrate you and indoctrinate you and get you just to live like them. Here's at some point, you've got to make a predetermined decision that I will not defile God's name. There's got to be a line that I say, I will not let God's name be defiled through my actions, through what I do, through the way in which I live, the way in which I operate in this world. This has to be something in which I will resolve. And it, it's, it's the idea of something that may be hard, that, that going to Daniel, but do you understand? Remember how we started Babylon? Babel was, we want to have a name for ourselves. Daniel now says, listen, I will not do anything that defiles not my name. Now it's not about me having a name for myself. I, my most important thing is, how is God's name being represented? Christians, you recognize that's your call. The, the God of this world has saved you. He's given you a life, and you're surrounded by everything that wants to take that away. At some point, you have to make a predetermined decision. That means maybe it's in your workplace when, it, when you're, you're called to do something that's, that's shady, that shouldn't be right. You have to make a predetermined decision. I will not defile God's name in doing that. Maybe it's something that you see. Maybe it's sexual purity. Maybe it's living a way that God has called you. Maybe it's just the way in which you treat others, but you, a predetermined way. My actions... I will stop. I will not let my actions, my life, defile the name of God. I am resolved. I have made this determination. In fact, the word resolved, if, you're, if you read from the KJV, I think it expresses it so well. Because actually, the King, J- King James, it's not one word, it's four words. The King James says this, he purposed in his heart not to defile the name of God. That resolved means that. It means you have purposed, not just, not just your resolution, not just saying, I'm, I'm not going to eat this. And I'm gonna, it's not your commitment. It's not your resolution. It's you purpose in your heart that this is what God wants, and I will not do what God does not want me to do. I am purposed in my heart to do what God has called. I am resolved to be what God has called me. It's a predetermined resolution from your heart not to defile God's name. God's name is first, not mine. Here's what we know from the story. It's really pretty cool as the story goes on. They made this predetermined resolution, but even when he approached Ash about the issues, he didn't come, he didn't come guns blazing, he didn't come rebuking, he simply said, can we do something? In verse 10 it tells how he said, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables and water, vegetables to eat, water to drink. And at the end, after they did all of this, veggies and water for 10 days, they then looked at him again and they were healthier than everybody else. He said, just, just test us because we believe this would dishonor our God. Let's try this, do it a way that can honor God and let's see. And God came, God showed up and he showed that they were healthier. And so then for the next three years, guess what their meal was? Veggies and water. Now this isn't a a sermon about being a, a vegan. It has nothing to do with that. 
because later we know Daniel ate other food. So it wasn't just that vegetables and water were the only way, but that whatever that food was, whatever the reason was, he knew that that was a defilement of God's name, and he said, I can't do that. I resolve that I'm not going to let my actions defile God's name. Christians, have you made that resolve? You say, I'm a, I'm a follower of God. I, I, amen, that's, that's fantastic. You're going to heaven, I'm, I'm, so that's awesome. But have you made a decision, a resolution, that I'm not going to let my lifestyle, my actions defile God's name? Of course, we're going to make mistakes. None of us are perfect. Daniel wasn't perfect. But we're going to make a resolution that I'm going to do everything I can, that when it comes to that line, I, I'm not going to cross that. If that action, if that act, attitude, if that lifestyle will defile the name of God. Here's what actually ended up, and I love this. Verse 19, this is three years later now. Three years later, verse 19, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, shows up. He comes and he found none equal to da Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, he, those four. They entered in the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which they questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. Go God, Right? God did something and made them just secede over all of the others. But folks, it comes back to a, a simple statement. They said, our decision is, regardless, and you're going to hear that in some of the other stories, it doesn't matter what happens, we just can't let our lives defile. We resolve, purpose in our heart, that we will not defile God's name with our lives. So let's go back and look again. Here's what we know about Daniel. In spite of your current appearances or circumstances, God is in control. And even living in Babylon, where we live, in this culture that is against God, you can still be faithful. You can do this. God has called you, and you can do this. So I have two questions for us to consider as we think about this. As we wrap it up, Here's what I want you to consider today as we walk through this, this series. How am I going to interact with my Babylon? What does it look like? Every one of us, we live in this culture, but every one of us is a little different. How are you going to interact? You've got to make some predetermined decisions about your integrity, about your purity, about the way in which, how, how are you going to interact? Here's how Jesus said it in John 17. He said, in his last prayer for his disciples, before he goes to the cross, he said, my prayer God, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I'm not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them. Do you hear how he said, this is what we do in Babylon. Babylon's not our home. Babylon's not our total existence, but it's the atmosphere in which we live in. You're not of this world. You're in this world, but you're not of this world. God has said, I have called you to be different, so Father, help them. Sanctify them. Help the word to make them what they need to be, and then send them out to make an impact. Send them on their assignments, God. That's how we interact with our Babylon. God, I am yours. Let your word come and change me. And then help me to stand and courageously and to go and do the assignment that you've called me to do. How are you going to interact with your Babylon? You've got to answer those questions. Second question, it kind of goes along with it. What decisions will I make to counteract Babylon's influence? Babylon's telling you to go this way. It's saying this is okay. Doesn't matter what you do. 
What predetermined decisions can you make right now when you go to work tomorrow, when you open up your computer, when you turn on the TV, when you listen to people's conversations? What predetermined decisions can you begin to make right now to say, I'm not going to let my life defile God's name? Daniel said, I am resolved not to defile myself. Will you be willing to say, and I am resolved not to defile myself? I am resolved. These decisions, I'm going to put some place, some things in place, and this will be a line. I, will. I live in Babylon. It's around me. The culture, I get it. Sometimes it's hard to see it, but when it comes to a point where God's name is threatened, I will resolve not to defile myself, not to defile God's name. Last verse I want to look at. It's kind of a New Testament version of, I think, of Daniel's words. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. I am not ashamed. In other words, I am resolved. I'm, I, 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 this, this gospel, this assignment, what God has called me, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm going to stand for it. I'm going to have courage in this. This gospel that we talk about, this is the gospel that Jesus gave his son because all of us are sinners and we need a savior. And the only way you're going to know salvation, eternal life, is if you receive the gift that God gave in his son who gave his life for your sins. That's the gospel. And I don't want to be ashamed of it ever. I don't want to be resolved that I'm going to live for the gospel. I'm going to live so that others can know that Jesus died and rose again for them. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing I want to ask before I move on. Have you received the gift of the gospel? Have you received that gift of salvation? Have you stopped and said, God, I'm a sinner and I need a savior and I believe Jesus died and rose again for me? Because as believers, now we can say, I'm not ashamed. I'm resolved to stand for this gospel. Have you done that? It's for everyone who believes. If you're here today and you've not accepted that gift, it's for you. It's for everyone who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is what we're resolved to stand for. I'm not ashamed, also says Christians. God, I I will make some predetermined resolutions. Are there some areas of compromise in your life that God is showing you and saying, "I, I want my name to be glorified in your life. Here might be a change you need to make. I'm not ashamed. I'm resolved to do what God has called me to do. There's some areas that I need to consider, or maybe it's just, God, this Babylon living is tough, so give me strength this week. Give me the strength to stand and be a resolve to do what you've called me to do. I'm on assignment. Help me to take that and to run with what you've called me to do.